Welcome to Climate Plus, a DevX podcast. I'm Michael Igo, senior reporter at DevX. Every year, usually around this time, the world turns its attention to climate change and what we're doing or not doing about it. At the UN Climate Conference, or COP, negotiators get deep into the weeds on every aspect of the climate crisis. This year, it's happening in Dubai. To help make sense of this complex, critical moment, we're bringing you conversations with leading climate thinkers, activists, and experts, and asking them, can COP28 deliver? What I think Ajay Banga shifted in this conversation is recognition of the fact that poverty and environment in many domains are deeply intertwined. That a commitment to eliminating poverty is almost impossible without an equal commitment to preserving the planet. Hi everyone, this is Raj Kumar, President and Editor-in-Chief of DevX. I know you're used to hearing our host, Michael Igo, but I'm here today to bring you a special episode of Climate Plus, sponsored by the World Bank. Joining me on the podcast is prominent economist Richard Demania, who is chief economist of the Sustainable Development Practice Group at the World Bank. In this discussion, we'll take a look at the economic effects of climate change, how the bank's thinking on development and climate change has shifted over the years, and the bank's new mission to end poverty on a livable planet. Here's our conversation. I thought, you know, one place we could start is just to understand your motivation for doing the work that you're doing, a little bit of your career arc, if that's okay, uh, Richard, because I, I, I find it fascinating. You, you were a professor at the University of Adelaide. You had a long career in economics and are noted uh, in, in the field, especially when it comes to water and the environment. But I imagine when you were studying economics, whatever drove you to get into this field to begin with, uh, you know, things have shifted a lot since then. And certainly with regards to climate, it's not as though we've just arrived at this new era with a new president at the World Bank. There's been a progression. And I guess I'd love to know just a little bit about your own career progression and how it maybe mirrors some of the, the world's progression, our thinking in, in terms of development and climate. Tell us a little bit about why or how you got into this field. So I was always interested in uh, environmental issues and in science issues, always a fascination for it. Equally, as a youth, I was interested when I encountered, first encountered economics, you know, the intellectual challenge of economics. It combines, if you like, the rigor of mathematics with the need to write and express yourself with clarity. And it seemed to be an excellent combination. But what was missing at the time, you know, conventionally when we think of microeconomics, macroeconomics, there's labor, there's firms, uh, and so on. But the environment is missing in conventional economic theory and conventional economic wisdom. But I grew up in that. But then over time, there was growing recognition that environmental economics became important. And when I went into academia, that's what I started teaching and pioneered some of the courses in environmental economics with some of the first textbooks that came out, some of the first courses. Of course, as an academic discipline, it was around for a very long time. But as a discipline taught in universities, it wasn't. And that was really the start of it. But truth be told, two decades ago, it was a peripheral field. 
Um, so whilst doing environmental economics, I continued doing other things that were more in the mainstream, things like game theory, empirical economics, and so on. Fast forward today, and it is impossible not to worry about environmental problems. So much so that you have central banks worrying about climate change. You even have some central banks worrying about biodiversity, which was regarded as something which is not really economics not so long ago. So the world has changed. There is recognition that environmental issues have material economic impacts, and it is the economy that primarily drives changes in the environment. So we need to understand that interaction, and it's a two-way interaction. But I think it would be only a minority today um, across the world that would say climate change is not a real problem. It's not an economic problem that we should worry about. And then once you get into climate change, I think because nature is so deeply interconnected and you start studying those issues, you realize all those other connections, be it with water, be it with air quality, be it with biodiversity and so on. How, how long, Richard, have you been at the World Bank now? I've been at the World Bank about a dozen years or so. Before that, I was a um, and just a standard academic in Australia, doing the sorts of things that academics do. So a little bit of teaching, uh, a little bit or a lot of research. And uh, as I said, my main research was environmental economics, but I also had other strings to my bow um, for a very, very long time. In that dozen years you've been at the World Bank, maybe you could kind of trace a similar arc. I mean, how have you seen even within and among the development economists at the World Bank, the focus on environment, water, and ultimately on climate, how has that shifted? It's shift. It's reflected pretty much what you see in the rest of the world. And sometimes I would say almost in a leadership position. Initially, again, you know, when I joined the World Bank, I joined the Environment Department, as it was called. Um, but even then, it wasn't so difficult, partly because of my background, to have interactions with macroeconomists, economists from other units, and really talk in the language of economists and explain in the language of economists why these things are material, why these things matter, and they matter in two ways, the economy having an impact on the environment and the environment having an impact on the economy. And it wasn't always that challenging to have those conversations. And over time now, it's just become completely mainstream. No one would wink an eyelid if you start talking, for example, about the impacts of climate change. And no one in economics should blink an eyelid when you, for example, point out that today more lives are lost to air pollution than are lost to all wars and all forms of violence each year, despite the horrific violence and the wars that we are seeing around us. So it is a problem. So there's been a bit of a debate as the new president of the World Bank has taken over Ajay Banga and changed the mission of the bank to talk about not just poverty, but but really eliminating poverty on a livable planet, quote unquote. And I guess I wonder how has that debate played out inside the bank or among development economists that you know outside the bank? Is there a sense, is there a debate at all that, that these two things really must go together? Because there are some who think, you know, actually maybe we focus too much on climate or on the environment, which may be more of a long-term issue at the expense of the immediate uh, and desperate human needs, especially in the most low-income and fragile countries. How have you seen that conversation kind of play out? I think it's kind of come in really in two stages. Um, firstly, there was recognition 
and growing recognition, at least in an intellectual sense, and as you said, in the long-run sense, that people, planet, and profits are deeply intertwined, and you can't really separate them, for reasons that I think all your listeners would know and understand very well. But of course, there's, there's always this concern that if I worry too much about one aspect, say, call it the planet, call it the environment, this could be at the expense of something else. But if we just go a little bit beyond it and think about it even wearing a strictly economics hat, the reason why we worry about these things is, is because it makes sense to correct them and correct these externalities, very often as economists would call them, correct these externalities in the optimal manner and to the optimal extent. So in a sense, what, what I think Ajay Banga shifted in this conversation is recognition of the fact that poverty and environment in many domains are deeply intertwined. That a commitment to eliminating poverty is almost impossible without an equal commitment to preserving the planet. It makes no sense, for example, if you grow an economy but you destroy your water resources, or you grow your economy to such an extent that the children that are born have diarrheal diseases or respiratory diseases, that's going to impede your economy, not just in the long run, but also in the short run because of the health expenses. So it's recognition of the fact that we, that we have reached those sorts of boundaries today that we may not have reached and then certainly did not reach 50 years ago, 30 years ago. And these are problems that have direct impacts on poverty. So if you want to eliminate poverty, it cannot be just a single-minded, very narrow lens at the issue. You have to look at the many, many things that impact poverty, housing, water, air quality, heat, etc., which all matter. And I think most development economists would recognize that um, and would see these things as being important today. One thing I've heard from development experts as they try to grapple with what the climate, the shifting climate is going to mean for people is that the main way people will experience climate change, especially in low and middle income countries, is water. There'll be too much water or there'll be too little water. Uh, think of floods, think of droughts, and that the effects of those are how many people will end up experiencing climate. You know a lot about the water space. You were an economist focused on it inside the World Bank before your current role. And I guess I wonder, is that how you see it too? You mentioned air pollution. Um, there's certainly many other ways that climate, including things like heat waves, will affect people. But is it fair to say that that water is the leading or one of the leading causes that, in terms of material effects on people's lives? I would step back uh, a little bit. The hydrological cycle, which is the water cycle, science will tell you is, is really the bloodstream of the climate system. It's what makes everything happen. The amount of water vapor will determine the amount of heat. The amount of water vapor is determined by heat, but it's also determined by the forest cover that we actually have. And one of the main impacts of the forest cover will have is again through the water cycle, through the hydrological cycle. And we can talk about that a little bit later on. So it's very clear that water is one of the most important ways in which climate change is going to impact people. As you said, too much water, too little water. So either you get flooding and then you get no water for huge amounts of time, so you get a drought or just a water shortage of some kind. And then again, you get all of that rainfall that should fall within three months, suddenly falling in only three weeks or sometimes one week or less, and that causes all sorts of problems. 
So there's absolutely no doubt that one of the key ways in which climate change will impact people is through the water cycle. But there will, of course, be other impacts. Let's not run away from that. When sea ice melts, and if you look at the empirical evidence rather than the models, the empirical evidence that economists are looking at tells us the melting is faster than many of the models suggest. Sea ice melting, that causes sea, sea level rise. The other thing we have to worry about is, of course, the pure impact of heat, especially when it's humid, when it's extremely hot. That's just not physically good for you, right? It impacts your heart. You know, there's no magic to this. Um, so physically, that's going to cause limitations too. So there's myriad ways, but it's certainly one of the leading ones has got to be water. And I, I guess that last point you made is what's referred to as the wet bulb effect, right? Where Correct. the temperatures get so hot, but yet it is so humid that our normal way of perspiring as a way to cool down just doesn't function anymore. Absolutely, absolutely, and that and that and that of course impedes productivity. And and you know and we know that we've seen that that's very well documented all over the place, the scientific literature, the economics literature, and so on. So um, so absolutely, so there's multiple channels through which you're going to see impacts, and perhaps some of the most worrying, or perhaps the most worrying aspect really of climate change, is if you look at what the projections are and what we're actually observing, is some of the worst impacts of climate change are happening the closer that you are to the tropics. So, for example, we're talking about water. What we found in very recent work is that the incidence of dry shocks, in other words, droughts, has increased by up to 230% in these areas close to the equator. Let me repeat that. Dry shocks, in other words, droughts, has gone up by about 230% in the last 40 years, close, close in areas close to the equator. And of course, this causes all sorts of issues that we need to now adapt to and worry about. Those are also developing countries and poor countries. The closer you are to the equator, the more likely you are to encounter developing countries. So you've got, in a sense, a double whammy of climate change having impacts much, much more severe closer to the equator than you have further out. Climate Plus is supported by the World Bank. Back in October, World Bank President Ajay Banga called for a new vision for ending poverty on a livable planet with a focus on climate action. We cannot endure another period of emission-heavy growth. We must find a way to finance a different world where our climate is protected, where pandemics are manageable, if not preventable, where food is abundant and fragility and poverty are defeated. We do not suffer from a shortage of solutions. We're just paralyzed by a persistent lack of courage to pursue them. The good news is that we have solutions like these within reach and resources at our disposal to scale them. To learn more about efforts to end poverty on a livable planet, search for the World Bank Group at COP28 or click the link in the show notes. How well analyzed are the, are the economic effects of climate change? You talked about how economists are looking at the empirical data versus maybe the modeling that climate scientists are, are using. And you've mentioned how you know, things like extreme heat can affect productivity. Ultimately, as economists, you're trying to turn some of these 
climate effects into sort of dollars and cents, right? To talk about but what is the actual economic impact? And that also helps to make an argument for where we should invest, you know, scarce and precious resources. How, how well analyzed are these issues at this point? How much do we really know about what these effects would be quantifiably? Really nowhere near enough. We don't know enough. But of course, I don't want to sound pessimistic. Things are getting better, much better, at an enormously rapid rate. And the reason is that we have a data revolution. Today, we can study where people move. We can study their productivity in ways that were absolutely unimaginable. And we also get measurements of what the climate is like, exactly where you are and where you're working, to be able to put the two together. So things are changing, and they're changing very, very rapidly. So having said that, we still don't know enough, partly because climate change is happening and we learn more and more as we go on. Um, and I think the direction in which it's going is that we are understanding how much more important nature is than we often thought. And I gave you one example of the way in which the climate models suggest a certain rate of glacial melt versus simply looking at the data and trying to correlate what you're seeing with the heat relative to the melt that you're seeing. What does that tell us? And you're seeing it to be much faster than the models are projecting. Now, it doesn't imply that the correlation is necessarily more accurate, but it does give us pause, it does give us reason to pause and worry about the rate at which we are seeing the melt. Right, so you're, you're looking at what's happened, whereas I guess the modelers are trying to project what will happen. Exactly. And, and so you can't know for sure that that same rate of change will hold and presumably client scientists you know, take this into account to some degree, but it certainly is a something that is a bit arresting and gives you pause when the empirical data is worse than what has been projected, which is already, you know, quite dire. Exactly, exactly. And, 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 you know, of course, part of it is also that we're finding out a lot more. We have this data that we never had before, that we can actually measure these things and work these things out. And the other thing which I find really fascinating in the, the, the area of empirical economics is that now some of the more cutting edge empirical economics is actually informing the science. So it's with the econometrics, it's called climate econometrics. It's sort of working the other way as well to inform the science, which I think is wonderful, right? So you've got all of the disciplines working together to tackle this truly immense global problem. And it is a complex system, you're right, where the kind of economic choices we make have an influence on the climate, right? It's not just exactly. the other direction. It's not a one-way street. Very much uh, so. And in fact, you've done quite a bit of work on this yourself, in particular related to the idea of subsidies, Right. Um, you know, we, we can kind of maybe get into a little bit of the economics here. You've already used a couple of economics terms in the conversation. You talked about materiality, right, which is sort of saying to what degree are these issues even material? Do they matter in the economy? And I guess the, the arc that you've seen in your career is that originally there's probably some skepticism about how material environmental issues were on real economic output and You've been able to show over time that, look, they are material, and now there's a broader consensus. And you also talked about the idea of externalities. You know, that These are things that might be happening outside of some economic model, but, but they ultimately do influence it. And, and I guess subsidies fit into this conversation as well, because you know, ultimately they are uh, influencing behavior, economic behavior, by making it cheaper to, let's say, burn fossil fuel. So to talk to us a little bit about what the current state of play is when it comes to subsidies and how they affect where we are headed in terms of climate change. 
All right. So we did a report that was, re that was recently released called Detox Development. And in that report, what we did is we looked at subsidies on the three most critical natural resources that we all need to survive and run the economy. Air, land, because that's where we get our food from, and water and fish, because we know we can't live without that either. Certainly the water that we can't live without. We look at all of the evidence, everything that everyone has done. Um, and what do we find in terms of the magnitude of the subsidy, what we call what is called explicit subsidy, that is the amount that the government actually pays to people. In these three sectors, the government pays an eye-watering 1.25 trillion US dollars each year. And that is an underestimate. This was a pre-COVID estimate. So after COVID, we know that all of these subsidies actually went up. So it's much, much higher than that. That's one aspect. And this is, in, this is Richard, in the whole world. This is advanced economies as well as low and middle income or the World Bank focus. Absolutely. And what we should also note, the other reason why it is an undercount, an underestimate, is many low-income countries don't account for all their spending as accurately as might the high-income countries for obvious reasons that we know. So clearly, it's much more than the 1.25 trillion than we can actually track and we can identify. The majority of those subsidies are actually doing harm. And a minimum of harm that you can quantify of seven, $7 trillion. These are astronomical eye-watering numbers that we are talking about. What kind of harm are we talking about? Let's start with agriculture. If you were going to pay farmers, one of the things that you might want from the farm subsidies that you're paying out is that this increases efficiency. What do we find? We find globally, right across the world, these, the majority of farm subsidies are paid in such a way that they cause inefficiency. Why? What's the, what's the logic? What's the theory behind it? Let's take a couple of examples. In most countries in the world, of course, you don't pay for the water that you use for irrigation. If you don't pay for something, you're going to overuse it. You're going to abuse it. So we see far too much water used than is needed. So much so, you get water logging in areas that are very dry and that impedes productivity. So, so much water is put on that it impedes productivity. Likewise, we know that nitrogen fertilizer is enormously important. Indeed, many scientists would argue the nitrogen fertilizer that we have and we use today has enabled tens of millions of lives. People couldn't live in these numbers. We wouldn't have the agricultural productivity. But Almost universally, the nitrogen fertilizer is subsidized. So you put too much nitrogen fertilizer out. What happens? On average, globally, 40% of that fertilizer is absorbed by the crop. What happens to the remaining 60%? Some of it will be vaporized into the air in terms of nit and called nitrous oxide. That nitrous oxide is 300 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than is carbon dioxide. So it's worsening greenhouse gases. If that was all, well, okay, it's still worse. The majority of the nitrogen that's not used by the crop will end up in water. When it ends up in water in very high concentrations, it can be lethal. It causes, for example, blue baby syndrome, which is why we have very, very strict standards across the world about nitrogen concentrations in water. Blue baby syndrome occurs when you get nitrogen in the bloodstream, and that impedes the blood flow. 
And there's a whole host of other impacts that you get, including on the environment. Things like hypoxia, which means dead zones because of a lack of oxygen. And it can take decades, if not centuries, for waterways to recover from hypoxia. A lot of this caused by subsidies. Another impact of subsidies that you have on soy, on beef, forest frontier products, they induce deforestation. And of course, the forests are falling at a rate that makes absolutely no economic sense. You can grow those same things in other places and with much, much higher productivity. So that's the kind of subsidies we have for land. If you look, if you look at subsidies in air, if you like fossil fuels, these, we are paying more in terms of fossil fuel subsidies than we do for all our climate commitments. And the fossil fuel subsidies are five times greater in their magnitude than the subsidies we give to renewable energy. So we have $500 million for fossil fuel subsidies at least, and under $100 million for renewable energy and clean energy. Does that make sense? It obviously doesn't. So that's, I think, one of the first things that the world should look at in terms of trying to solve these problems. Is are we spending wisely? Are we putting that money where it actually matters? Or is it inadvertently doing harm? Yeah, it seems like you know, we can't talk about these topics without getting into the idea of political economy, because, you know, these inefficiencies that are created by subsidies are there for a reason. And, uh, you know, they're often very obvious, like, you know, in countries where low income, uh, you know, citizens need access to energy and a fuel subsidy has been in place for many, many decades to make it possible for them to buy, you know, cooking fuel. Um, and if you were to take that subsidy away and not replace it with something else, then low-income households would find that they can't live, you know, at even the basic level they're used to, and that might lead to political upheaval in the country, right? So there's, there's a political economy, I guess, baked into many of these decisions. Some of them are more complex or less obvious, but think about industry groups, uh, agricultural lobbies, and the like. So it sounds like maybe what you're saying is we need to paint a picture, and, and certainly as economists, maybe you and your colleagues are trying to paint a picture for policymakers that show you might deal with some short-term political pain by removing subsidies, but you can, you can get so many additional advantages for your economy and ultimately for those very same citizens who might be negatively impacted by removing the subsidy. I mean, is that sort of how you look at the calculation here? I think that's exactly right. And Indeed, what we, what we found is we did a statistical analysis of all the cases of successful subsidy or environmental policy reform. And what we found was something very similar to what you say. 84% of successful reforms paid some kind of compensation for losses. Sometimes the loss was to very rich people, very rich farmers. But you know that if you don't compensate losers, they're going to resist the change. And you won't have political support. And indeed, we are seeing this right across the world, wherever we go. So one of the preconditions that we argue for successful reform is worry about the losers and worry about some kind of compensation, whether it's cash, whether it's kind, whether it's in terms of policy or some other way, shape or form. So that was one. The other big, big, big important issue that we found was even if you're paying that compensation, if you don't communicate communicate, communicate with people. And if you don't form a lobby that actually supports the change, no matter how good your policy might be, 
it is highly unlikely to actually succeed. So the communication and the compensation are absolutely key to success. I've read that research that's come out of the bank. And I think one of the things that's so important about it is it it doesn't say it's easy to do this work. If you're a political leader reading this research, you're not going to think, oh, this is simple. But on the other hand, it shows that the, the idea that it always fails, that removing subsidies is always a political loser. You know, we think about the yellow vests uh, in that, that movement in France related to fuel subsidies, for example. That is a, that's a myth, too. You know, that yes, there are some very prominent examples where removal of subsidies led to political upheaval. But there are others where governments have actually successfully communicated transition from one kind of subsidy that's inefficient to another that's actually more efficient. Um, and it's worked. Absolutely. And it's been, you know, a longer term vision. And it's very, very often an involved a consensus that you have across society that we need this, that there will be gains from it. And I think once you once you begin to communicate those things and if you build the trust and the credibility, the compensation will be paid, that's when you actually see those reforms actually happening. Um, when, you, when you get reversals or very, very short-term uh, gains and then there's a reversal back there is when you fail on one or the other of those two pillars uh, or both of them very often. Because even if you're compensating, you're saying, I'm not going to compensate you for the next five years. You know, that's not going to work for obvious reasons. You're going to create resistance. So it's got to be pretty immediate, very often paying the compensation in advance rather than after the fact. Are you interested in the intersection of business and social impact? Do you want to know how corporate sustainability, ESG, impact investing, and more can contribute to development finance? My name is Adva Saldinger. I'm a senior reporter at DevEx, and I've been reporting on these issues for nearly a decade. I'm the author of DevEx Invested, our free weekly newsletter dedicated to development finance. Every Tuesday, we explore how companies, investors, and market mechanisms are reshaping the world of development finance. Visit devx.com slash newsletters and join us on Tuesdays. You've talked a little bit about how subsidies uh, relate to fossil fuel industries versus renewable. And, you know, one of the things I've heard from some of your colleagues that I find fascinating is we're not just replacing potentially or transitioning, to use the term of art, from fossil fuel industries to renewable, we're actually going to potentially unlock a whole new kind of economic model because there's some pretty fundamental differences between the way you extract and use fossil fuels from how you can generate solar or wind or other kinds of renewable power. Can you just talk a little bit through what you see as this this transition from economic models? What are some of the features of that? And, And in particular, where what does it mean for private companies? I think about the new president of the World Bank coming from the private sector and really leading a call to get more private sector investment in this new economic model. What does this look like in general? And what does it look like for private companies and investors? So potentially, there's a huge upside for private companies because what we're doing is we're unlocking and we're creating a new, a new set of markets. Um, and there's always uncertainty when you're actually doing that creating new markets, where those new markets will actually go. But with that uncertainty actually comes huge opportunity. So there is an actually an opportunity, I think, for the private sector to be involved in this. 
I think there's also an opportunity for governments to nudge the private sector in by creating the enabling environment. I think critical to the enabling environment is when you do the right thing by the environment, you should not be at a competitive disadvantage. So you create a level playing field wherein someone that comes up with a clean way of doing whatever it is that you're doing is not at a competitive disadvantage to someone that's creating a lot of pollution or is doing chopping down a lot of trees or creating a lot of destruction. So the regulation, I think, matters. Creating the level playing field actually matters. The other thing, of course, I think a feature of this new green economy, as we know, is it will involve a different set of skills. And I think we do need to worry very deeply about having a just transition, a transition where if you're going to lose, you get compensated rather than saying simply shrugging your shoulders and saying, well, bad luck. No, that shouldn't be the case. What we should try to do is to bring those industries in those regions, make sure that people actually benefit out of it rather than simply being you know, left to fend for themselves without the necessary assistance. So I think the World Bank has been taking very seriously this idea of a just transition and how you can actually compensate or ensure that you include in this transition people that might be losing their positions or losing their wage rises or whatever it might be as the economy actually transitions. And the final thing to say, I think, is that in a lot of um, what's going to happen in the future will depend on innovation. And innovation, of course, will need to be nudged in the right direction. It won't always come in the ways that we would want it to. So governments do have a role to play, and they have played a very, very good role in the past. If you look at, say, for example, renewable energy, you know, there was, there's been all sorts of support, very varied across the world. But we are at a stage today with renewable energy that in many places and on average, renewable energy is actually cheaper than it is to use fossil fuel. We know that there's there's challenges and there's lock-ins. We know all of those sorts of things, but that's a really good place to be in. And without all of the support that was actually given to the renewable energy industry, probably we wouldn't have got here. So I think there's a combined role. The private sector has huge amounts of funding relative to what's available in the public purse. So you create the conditions and try to work out what's going to be profitable for the private sector. And if there's a profit to be made, you'd like to think, or we know, the private sector will be there and be making those profits. It does seem like we're entering an era where industrial policy will become more important than it's been. I mean, in some ways, I think you know certain governments like to claim they don't do industrial policy, even though they might have subsidies you know, in place for many, many years. But it does feel like we're entering an era where intentional industrial policy, where, where governments really think about how do we shape a new you know, energy industry in our country? And how do we make sure that it's just and equitable? And can we use the, the carrots and the sticks of you know, subsidy and regulation to really get us there? That seems like a key conversation and one that obviously the World Bank must play a very key role in. Absolutely right. When we're talking about, A, not only the frontier technologies, but when we're talking about the public good, and clearly we're talking about global and national public goods, I think it's very clear, I think economics will tell us very clearly the government does have a role to play in nudging and creating the incentives. There may not always be a profit to be made, you know, out of, say, you know, we're talking about a disease that 
might impact, say, very poor people only in developing countries, there may not be the same amount of profit to be made from controlling that disease as a disease that affects people in rich countries that can afford to pay for the medicine. It's as simple as that. Um, that therefore governments have a role to play in ensuring that we get the same innovation, the same vaccines or whatever it might actually be. And it's no different when it comes to environmental problems. Absolutely. You know, I talk to a lot of people about what they expect from COP28, um, and I get lots of different perspectives. Many of them are quite skeptical, just given the state of global conflict, uh, geopolitical conflict, and you know, economic situations, especially in rich, rich high-income countries. Um, you know, there's a sense of, of skepticism that we're going to see big new announcements come out of this COP28. Uh, I guess I'm curious what your take is, what you're hoping as someone who's followed this issue for a long time and has a clear view kind of about where the opportunities are, what, what you hope something like COP28 actually could lead to. Okay, first let me say that the World Bank is not a party to negotiations, as you know, right? We are just an observer. And of course, our mandate and our role is really, to, is really developing countries. So adaptation is key. And what we would always do is try to ensure that the adaptation and the impacts on poor countries is front and center in those conversations. And I think over time, we have been successful in ensuring that adaptation concerns are front and center and are becoming more and more important at each COP as you go along. There's always been uh, very difficult conversations at COPs. That's why we have them. They're there to nut them out. And over time, you get progress. And I think we can also focus on where we will, where we're more likely to get progress. Of course, we don't know the conversations haven't happened. But there are still some things where there, are clear, where there seems to be clearer consensus. Things like, say, for example, controlling methane emissions, where we can quite easily get a win-win for the economy and for climate. And there's a couple of things, there's, there's other things like that as well, that you'd like to hope where we can actually make, get some movement and get some agreement. And this conversation kind of started on some high level economics concepts and landed as, as often they do on politics, right? And the political economy behind the kinds of decisions governments make. And I guess that's the whole point of the COP in a way, right? Is to focus the world's attention and maybe change the, the political dynamics, get people to recognize that Actually, there are you know, other political interests, uh, longer-term political interests, maybe more broad-based interests of, of societies around the world that are at stake here, and, and at least have a more balanced discussion that hopefully leads to abandoning and reinventing some of the old-fashioned uh, subsidies and models that we've been using for far too long. Absolutely. And, you know, it's COP's, COP is also the forum at which we can actually... Um, bring up issues that wouldn't otherwise be brought up, issues such as, as we were talking about subsidies a moment ago, the gross inefficiencies that we have in the economy that are causing environmental harm and may also make very little economic sense. So there's clearly win-wins, but there's also clearly difficult issues that need to be discussed. But that is the whole point of a COP. You know, if it was easy to do it, we wouldn't have a COP and those agreements would have been done. It's only because they're so difficult that we actually have them. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And uh, certainly, you know, you've given us a lot to think about and to follow up on and cover, as we will certainly do here at DevEx. So I want to give a big thank you to you, Richard, Demania, and all your colleagues at the World Bank Group. It's been, uh, it's been great to have this conversation. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Roger. And thank you for having us on DevEx. It's been a pleasure. 
thanks for listening to Climate Plus. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it. And you can also leave us a rating or a review. We'll be publishing episodes twice a week in the lead up to, during, and after COP28. So make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. If you want to share some feedback on this episode or have questions you'd like answered, we'd love to hear from you. Drop me a message on X, formerly Twitter, at alterigo, or send an email to podcast at devx.com.